All right, what's going on, guys? So today I'm really excited because we're sitting down with the hypertrophy coach, Joe Bennett. And we're going to be talking about hypertrophy training and misconceptions and just covering a quite a broad spectrum of, of questions that I get on a regular basis. So first off, Joe, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's great to have you here. Yeah, absolutely, man. Happy to be here. Would you be able to just give a little bit of an introduction and history of, of yourself for those who maybe aren't familiar with you and your work? Yeah, for sure. Um, I always feel weird saying this, uh, this telling my little bio, try to keep it as short as possible. But um, I mean, honestly, as far as, um, you know, where I, where I'm at now and where I started, I, I honestly first got into it, um, a little bit from playing sports. So I got into training the same as a lot of people. Um, my dad would take me to the gym every once in a while, had the bench press in the garage deal. I don't know when that happened sporadically age 10 to 14, something like that. And then probably when I was 14, 15, uh, my brother had the Arnold encyclopedia of modern bodybuilding. And I remember the first time, like looking at that being like, Oh shit, like people look like this. And uh, it's the cliche thing, but something was like, okay, like I, I want to do that. And I'm naturally like my whole, everyone kind of says this, but if you look at my entire family and everything, I'm naturally kind of like lanky. I got like long arms, kind of like a smaller rib cage. Like I'm really good at endurance sports and uh, something clicked with me too. Cause I just like to do things that I'm not naturally good at. Um, and so in high school, I literally just went like my, I think my entire family thought I had mental problems. Like I literally would just, uh, I, you know, spent all my money on magazines. I'd read everything I could online. At some point in time during high school, I was training like three times a day just because I thought training was all you were supposed to do. And I liked it. So I would literally train during school, after school and another gym membership I had at night. Didn't know anything about recovery. Didn't know anything about eating just because I didn't really care about that at the point in time. And I used to bring like dumbbells and shit on vacations and stuff. And it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty entertaining in retrospect, looking at all the stereotypical, ridiculous meathead stuff I did. Um, and then in college, um, I was pre-physical therapy for a little bit because I kind of had the idea I wanted to do something in the physical realm. Um, I actually, that's the first time I like figured out, okay, like eating's important, sleep's important, you know, toned down my training to two a days. Uh, but still like anyone, anyone that knew me in college was just like, I had, well, I had two things. I had like bodybuilding stuff on one side of the wall and then like Lord of the Rings stuff on the other side of the wall. So I always say both of those are very popular with ladies. I don't know how I ended up with my wife during college. Somehow she didn't get turned off by that. <laughs> And, um, but that was when I got my first job at a gym as well, too, up at school. Um, and at some point in time, I think by my third year, I switched from pre-physical therapy to like an exercise science degree. Um, still didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but that, that, um, you know, that degree had the word exercise in it and science, which I think if we combine the two, maybe I'll have an actual job coming out of college. And, um, so worked at a gym up there, uh, got around some really good people. That's the first time I realized like the good the benefit of getting outside of just, you know, like your, your curriculum, what you're learning, obviously in your classes and stuff and getting around some people that are on like the, the rec strength and conditioning side. That's when I actually started personal training for the first time, training just college population. Um, and so I honestly did it cause I just kind of liked it, but I didn't think you could make a living at being a trainer. Uh, cause I just had the same perception of trainers that everybody did. And honestly still like early two thousands, I don't know. It still wasn't quite, it's definitely not like it is now. And even then it was still kind of like, I don't really know if you can make a living at this type deal. Um, so I basically got into corporate wellness right outside of college and hated that. I had somebody give me a business card and say, Hey, if you're interested in training, you know, come, come hit me up or whatever. And uh, really, really lucky. My wife had gotten a job in the area we were at. And then I started working for like a big box gym, just thinking, well, I can make money doing this. And while I figure out what, what a grown up's supposed to do for a living, basically. And um, I got around some really good people. So I really, really showed me, um, you know, the business side of it. Like you could, you could make this a business. It's, and again, the how, how serious and how respected your profession is, is how serious you take it and how, how much respect you basically earn by, you know, how you carry yourself and how you treat your business. 
Um, so I was lucky that I got around some people that were, again, really showed me the business side. I got all into that for two, three years. Um, ended up managing the club that I was at. I managed clubs at another company after that as well, too, just managing training departments. Um, and all through that time, um, I was always into bodybuilding. That's kind of the way that I always trained. always still like really like, you know, I was always my ideal client in every gym. I slowly progressed from general population to working with like whoever was in the best shape in the gym. That's who I wanted to train. Um, and so I always worked with people that were a little bit more on that kind of advanced end of the spectrum. Um, and probably after my first two or three years of just focusing solely on business, I realized I needed to put more time and effort into continuing education. And I always tell people a big pivot point. Someone at the company at that time told me uh, they, they were personal friends with Charles Falkland. And uh, when I was trying to talk to him about just, I need to get my step up my education. What should I do? Um, I had been exposed to a couple guys that were in like into the RTS stuff, MAT stuff. But at that point in time, this guy said, you know, go take some Paul Quinn stuff. He's great. And uh, so that was the first time. I think the first class I went to, I believe I actually traveled to Toronto. might have been the very first one. Um, and so I got hooked just from the idea of one actually being around people smarter than me, being around like other peers, you know, coaches that obviously took their profession serious, were willing to travel long distances. Um, and so that was probably 2000, maybe nine, I would say. Um, and then from there, I was just like kind of committed to myself at least I said always twice a year and I've stuck with that at least twice a year. I'm going to travel somewhere for a certification, for a seminar, for whatever, uh, just to basically set myself something to do, you know, half the time to learn stuff. Obviously the other half of the time is just to get around like-minded people. Um, and then I'll also just really like, you know, I joke, it's like, it's like brushing your teeth, probably a good idea. So it's like, why not just set a schedule for yourself that you're just going to adhere to. And even the couple things that I've done that I didn't end up pursuing, it's still always something good comes out of that. Um, so I've been uh, really, really heavy into continuing education stuff. Like I said, since 2009, 10, I've done a lot of stuff. I did everything Paul Quinn had at the time. So I went through his like PICP one and two, did some of his extra ones. I went to biosignature and then bioprint like three different times, I think. Then sometime along the way, I've done some MAT stuff. I've done some RTS stuff. I've done some functional anatomy seminar stuff. I'd say RTS is probably my favorite one I've done the most with now at this point in time. Um, and then all along the way, for anybody who knows, I, I worked with, I was still good friends with Ben Pikulski, um, and timing where I was working basically an hour away from him when he was opening MI40, I moved up, uh, basically months before MI40 opened up. And so that's when I actually started participating in social media. So a lot of people know me from my time when I worked with Ben and MI40, I was there for about two and a half years, uh, and overall very good, uh, very good thing just to get around more, you know, my passion, my passion's always been bodybuilding. And, um, so that's really when I kind of started. Again, just having this whole notion of having an online presence, doing some continuing education, um, and just kind of uh, pursuing the ability to work with people that I wanted to work with. Um, and then I, around the end of 2018, I believe, is when I left there and kind of just started going out and doing my own thing. And I've been doing my own thing since then, where I, I train a couple of clients still, train some people when they come in and out of town sometimes as well. I always like to just kind of keep the sword sharp, I always train some people, train some bodies. Uh, but I spend the majority of my time now work-related, just doing kind of like content that's going to hopefully reach more people. So doing stuff on, you know, YouTube, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And um, and then the rest of my time spent with my family. So that's about as much as I can catch it up, I think, in a short period of time. It's not so short, but um, I always say it's, I, I understand now because like there's so many people that I've followed all the way up where like knowing their story and relating to parts of it, you know, really helped me relate more with that person. And so, because a lot of people see me at the end result now, I was like, oh, he talks about muscles and moment arms and anatomy and all that stuff. But I'm like, at my core, I'm like a meathead that just has done all the dumb in the trenches meathead shit for a couple of decades. 
and just kind of layer that on top with just the, I think it comes hopefully with a growth, a growth mentality, just wanting to get better personally and professionally. So. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I mean, it was funny because actually I, I recently posted something about that as well, just about how, you know, what you see on Instagram is entirely choreographed and there's like not a whole lot of stuff there that's telling you what the actual person's life is like or how they progressed or all the different, yeah. it sounds like you got a pretty cool story and you were able to, to get around some awesome people, especially early on. Yeah. So this isn't really so much related to the topic, but what is your, your kind of content strategy for like Instagram and YouTube? Like it's, it's mostly educational based from, from what I've seen. You do like a lot of videos. Um, yeah. Like yeah. I don't know if I have a strategy. I should probably get one of those. Um, <laughs> I want to, to be honest, I mean, really like, cause I, you know, it's one of those things, my same, my perception of personal training, you know, what my perception was, I, I created a reality at first, you know, I was deterrent. I didn't, I was like, oh, I can't be a personal training for a living because this is what I had perceived it as. And that's what I made it as a reality in my brain. So honestly, when, uh, so the whole social media thing at first, I had just perceived it as like this negative thing. Cause especially like it, it is a lot different now, in my opinion, in some ways it's a lot better as platforms all progress towards, you know, more longer videos and able to write more and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of right when I was first just seeing Instagram, I was like, I, people are just posting pictures of their abs and their asses. And there's not a whole lot past that. And, um, but I finally got talked in. This is when I was at my 40, Ben, other, a couple other people around me were encouraging. And even Ben at the time was like, you just need to start writing stuff and video and stuff. And I'm like, why? And he's like, just, just do it, man. Just put out some good information. You don't have to have a why yet. And so I'm like, all right. And, uh, to be honest, I always liked uh, public speaking. I always liked writing. I didn't realize at the time before I started that, that had always been a component, whether it was at school or in jobs that I had. I always had components of public speaking and, you know, where I'd be teaching groups of people or speaking on calls or writing weekly things. I used to, even at my job, I used to have to write, you know, weekly updates or whatever it was. And for some reason, I'd always like make them entertaining or funny, or I'd turn things in where if it was like a group of managers and several clubs where I basically like shit talk the other managers and the other clubs um, just for fun. Cause I'm like competitive and I like just writing funny shit. And uh, so anyway, when I started social media, I was just like, well, I'm going to just kind of, I started writing stuff. And if anybody's following my stuff, I've got these long ass captions explaining all this shit. And especially at the time, you remember one of my good friends, still my business partner at this point in time with stuff was like, Hey, just so you know, man, he's like, people, I don't know if they're going to read all that, man. People just want to see like quick, you know, 15 seconds. I think it was like 15 seconds at that point in time and show a muscle and like move on. And my, my joke was, I was like, well, I like to write that way. And I always would, I would do one, especially in the beginning when you have like four followers, it's like my wife and my mom, probably. I'm like, I would just write a post and I just, I'd send it to my wife because she didn't have Instagram. I just like say, Hey, here's what I wrote. Do you think this is funny? And if she thought it was funny, I was like, all right, well, sweet. I'm entertaining my wife. So, so we're golden. Uh, and honestly, I didn't have a strategy at first, which I think in some ways uh, was beneficial because I just, I mean, it sounds cliche, but I kind of made my thing my own. Um, and as far as the actual content itself, I mean, that's, I think that's where a lot of people I think are missing it. Feel like people that are having a hard time with content aren't actually trainers or aren't actually coaches. Because I never had a hard time with what am I actually gonna what am I actually gonna film what am I actually gonna show? It's like well I was working I had a full clientele at that point in time you know so I'm training ten clients a day so it's like every single thing I should do is obviously with the idea of benefiting someone so if any point in time I should be able to like hey here's a conversation I had with a client discuss that topic hey here's an exercise I did with a client here's why I did this here's my own workouts here's why I'm choosing this and and that's basically all I did I didn't really have a plan for whatever I was just like well here's what I'm doing and I'm going to talk about it. And obviously like social media works if people follow for a while then after a while then you know with these little clips here and there you start to paint a little bit of a broader picture of stuff um you know and so if i say i have a theme i mean the reality is it's not i think that again it's a lot of people trying 
just go right to that end result where they're like, how do I produce content? And I'm, I'm generally still just focused on how am I training people? How am I producing results? Um, and then I just basically talk about that sporadically. I mean, the joke is honestly, I probably need a little bit better structure with some of my content, but at the end of the day too, it's like, you know, if people really follow along long enough, it's like, well, these are the things that I'm doing. This is why I talk about this. Like, hopefully you should get a general feel of the concepts and principles that I do. And, um, you know, so it's a balance of really, again, everything comes down to, um, I, I completely understand the meathead world. I mean, that's the funny thing is people again, want to occasionally say, you know, you get the excuse of if I'm doing something you know, not conventional or whatever, you know, there's always the excuse of like, but Ronnie, people are like, well, but Ronnie, like, look what Ronnie did, look what Arnold did, why the hell are you doing all this? And I, the thing I think is funny about that is it doesn't offend me that I think people, you know, think what I'm doing is dumb. It offends me that they don't think that I know about Ronnie and Arnold. Like I know more about Arnold and Ronnie than you do. And the guys that are Ronnie are the guys, the current day Ronnie's I'm working with those guys right now. It's like, I get it. I totally get it. And I've never actually said things Arnold did were dumb or Ronnie did was dumb or whatever. You know, I just, if anything, try and create a better context around all that. Like, well, here's what Ronnie did. Here's maybe why this would work great for him and maybe not work great for you or whatever. And, um, and the reality is some people are just offended by thinking, which is the sad thing. It's like, they'd rather be emotional. And when challenged with the thought process, you know, the first thing that challenges your current thought process or current belief or current actions is to respond emotionally. Um, and I say that too, having been there, because I've, I've been that, like obviously being entrenched as a meathead first, I can remember key points in my career prevented, uh, presented with you know, information or a different thought process or whatever. And I remember just getting butthurt. I just remember being emotional and being mad at the person presenting. At the time, I couldn't have told you why. And then it, luckily, some of them took a while for me to look back and be like, this person was just pre presenting like information. He wasn't saying I should do this or that, or this was good or bad. He was just presenting stuff because of where my head was at, you know, I got emotional. So, um, you know, knowing that I, I like the bodybuilding side, I know the bodybuilding side, I know it very well. And then I just try and accompany that with a growth mindset. Um, I, if anything, I'm just really trying to get people to see things, um, you know, as they are to really see the bigger picture of stuff, you know, cause we're in an industry where it's easy for me to sell, Hey, here's this rep scheme gimmick. That's my training, right. Or here's this specific, whatever, like just make up something unique, put a name to it, nothing complex to understand. And here, go do this. This is my gimmick. And I could probably sell it really easy because it's straightforward. It's not complicated. You know, the good and the downside from business, if I'm saying, Hey, here's all these principles, you know, watch a few hours of videos, see this in application, you know, start to figure out where you fit in with this, where your clients fit in with this. It's not as quick or easy of a sell. Um, but long-term, once people start to kind of open their eyes to just, Oh, I can just look at things without being emotional about them. And then just try and see where they fit or don't fit. I think that makes for better trainers and then ultimately makes for people that can produce better results for themselves as well too. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's almost like you're teaching an individual how to think and evaluate information for themselves as well. And that's, that's tough. It takes a long, long, long time. And so, I mean, it's no surprise when people are like, Oh, so I have to dedicate like actual work and I have to really think critically yeah. about these things. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. no, that makes sense. That's awesome. So uh, I guess just to kind of dive right into it. One of the questions that I got was, are there any direct or indirect, um, like hypertrophy? The are there any indirect or direct adaptations for hypertrophy that come from strength? Like I know a lot of people um, say that muscle potentiates strength, but is there any sort of like uh, is the reverse of that also true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. I mean, obviously, it's one of those things where I mean, it certainly is an interesting conversation, you know, and you can see things depending on being goal specific. And whether it is, I mean, there's even interesting research, we, you know, we're always told this, you know, how much your, you know, potential is for increasing strength, 
you know, from a neurological component, um, you know, whether that actually is, if we actually look from an individual muscle standpoint and your ability to actually recruit more of something, um, or if it's actually from just the coordination component, because most of our, most of our measures of strength are, are some sort of athletic maneuver, right? Like, I mean, obviously squatting proficiently is a sport, benching proficiently is a sport, you know, so we're obviously taught there's this adaption that can come just from basically the brain side, you know, of that neuromuscular junction. Um, and then obviously there's even more research now. It's like, is that, does that really happen? Or is there, is there never really a time where strength occurs separate of some degree of tissue being laid down? Um, I mean, so the short answer is, I think if, if there's some sort of documentable progression, you know, of the things that we're looking at either side, whether it's, you know, load or whatever, even in, you know, lower rep ranges, even if we're not doing things in the typical, you know, muscle building hypertrophy world, I think it, it absolutely leads to more tissue. Um, you know, and I think the notion of obviously the way a lot of people do things is, are there more efficient ways to put on tissue, you know, quicker? Yeah, of course. Um, but again, most people, I mean, obviously that's where periodization really comes in huge is for people more into purely strength or more into, you know, strength or performance-based sports, because obviously, you know, like you said, that tissue will lead to, you know, higher output in some degree, if you can co coordinate it and use it. Um, but at the same time, it can take away obviously from whatever your output or your performance is, if you spend too much time doing those things. So I, I think, I think both ways, it's pretty, it's pretty inseparable. Um, in my opinion, like I said, I don't think I've ever seen anyone have some uh, significant documented progression of strength, um, you know, where they're not out also having tissue being laid down. And, and then the tough part obviously is, I mean, I don't know how you would even, because it's a spectrum, right? So there's never really a point in time where someone's technically not doing, you know, if someone's doing even a program where they never do anything more than a one rep max. I mean, that's technically still on the spectrum of there's intramuscular force production. It's for some amount of volume. So even if the hypertrophy wheelhouse is here and this is way over here, it's still on the spectrum, you know, and even if we look at someone that trains like a traditional strength athlete of here's what they're doing for all of their performance, their power, their strength work, but they even have some sort of hypertrophy block in there, then there's never really a time we can completely exclude. Oh, is there, there was no hypertrophy work occurring did this person still put on tissue while doing purely strength stuff? Um, so it's an interesting conversation. Um, but yeah, no, I, I would, I would have to say the short is I don't think they're ever, they're ever exclusive of each other either way on that. So. Yeah. And so the, I've definitely seen a lot more of the research coming out and a lot more people coming out um, being somewhat critical against the association between uh, muscle and, and strength adaptations. So, you know, the, the question kind of being like, okay, well, are, is is the new contractile tissue that's being laid down, is that actively contributing to greater force production and better, you know, motor skills, like you said, for, for the specific tasks, since yeah. strength is like joint angle and, and force vector specific, right? Mm -hmm. And part of the argument that I've seen is, you know, well, are we getting an increase in, in tendon stiffness? Because that, mm -hmm. that makes a big difference. Are we yeah. changing leverages, right? So for instance, like, uh, I'm, I'm 280, you know, and I've been, yeah. I've been dieting down. So my stomach has gone down quite a lot, actually. I'm getting, yeah. and that absolutely impacts your squat, right? Yeah. So is it a change in leverages? How much of it is a change in leverage? How much of it yeah. is a change in, in contractile tissue and force mm -hmm. production? And I think that's kind of an interesting conversation. I've heard people say that there doesn't seem to be a strong association, which that I wholeheartedly disagree with. Yeah. But I think it, it's really interesting when you maybe break it down to a little bit more specific, like, okay, well, at what point is the cutoff where, okay, now we're starting to see those things really make a difference? Because if someone gains 30 pounds of muscle, I don't give a fuck who you are, in my opinion, they're going to be stronger. Yeah. You know? But 
will you be stronger if you gain five pounds? Will you be stronger if you gain, you know, seven or 10 pounds? Like, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm, it's a little bit, you know, less clear, at least in my opinion. Have you, have you seen yeah. any of the research on that or any of the discussions that have been happening around that? Um, a little bit. I mean, so to be honest, like lots of that stuff, you know, I, it's nice, especially within the hypertrophy world. I mean, I have a couple of my research people that obviously they're going to fit, they're going to fit my bias of, I want someone that's still putting things into, you know, principles and concepts. So again, obviously keeping up with research can be a full-time job. And obviously that's a lot of people do a really good job of that. I mean, they do research reviews where it's like, Hey, here's all these things. We put all the time and effort and here's the compartmentalized versions of what you can actually figure out from there. Um, no. So the short answer is I'm not always digging into like, what's the most current or what's whatever. I actually look a lot of the ways that I recommend people is I follow a few coaches. I see their interpretations of things like that. And, um, and honestly, that's, you know, that, that realm uh, again, for what I can actually do or what I could actually help someone with, is kind of out of my scope of practice. So it's one of those things where the same as you said, it's like, where's the actual end result of like, well, what is the point of, you know, like you said, is it five pounds is important? 10 Well, 30 pounds, obviously something's happening. Where's it in between? I, I think all that's like neat, but at the same time, I don't, you know, it's one of those things, same with everything in the hypertrophy world. Some people will get lost in the middle there and, and argue about stuff. And I was like, well, that's where I don't want to spend my time. Right. It's like, well, let's kind of, you know, obviously you have a best plan and a best plan of action. And sometimes you just see what happens and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work type deal. Um, you know, so obviously like anytime that I'm, anytime I've ever helped in any capacity, someone that's more of a performance or strength athlete, you know, my whole direction is how can we just make your, if you're doing hypertrophy work, your hypertrophy work, you're doing a hypertrophy block, whatever it is, you know, how can we make that more efficient? You know, really just as far as, again, you've got all these things you have to do, you know, with your actual skill, with your strength work, with whatever it is, how can we make sure that that hypertrophy block is, eating into everything else you have to do as little as possible. You know, we're going to have the least impact overall. Cause that's why I think a lot of people mess it up in the strength world is just, just layering way too much right on top where they might be able to get the job done with less. Um, so, I mean, I've yeah, again, I've seen a little bit of that, but I'm definitely not, I'm definitely not in the weeds with that at all right now. So it's anytime people send me anything or information on that, especially when we get more to the strength side, I'm always like, Oh, neat. I'm happy to like look through it, but I don't really feel like I'm in a spot to formulate any strong conclusions on that based on, uh, you know, I'm not applying it to populations a whole lot, you know? Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I think one thing that you mentioned actually that I'm almost certain is going to go over everyone's head or most people's head is, you know, the idea of doing less rather than more. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's something, especially like immediates and, and quite a few advanced individuals still do that is yeah. like, they'll do, I don't know, eight sets when they could get away with three. Yeah. Like you're not really seeing a big difference, but you're seeing a massive spike in, in terms of like generated fatigue from that. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's definitely something to, to, to pay attention to for sure. One of the Ooh. things that I wanted you to kind of um, illustrate as, as far as like how you implement these things are, could you just kind of briefly describe some of the primary mechanisms involved in hypertrophy and then how yeah. like what that actually means from a practical standpoint because a lot of people will say oh mechanical tension and metabolites and this and this and this but yeah then it's like okay but what does that mean like what do you actually do that's kind of where that sort of yeah. practical side falls off yeah um so i always say like one of because i always refer because he's one of my favorite you know and some of this is when you're you know, all research works like, you know, we have these things in practice in the field that these perceivably work, you know, then obviously research just takes a comb through that and says, okay, well, let's figure out, you know, how much of this is going to be, you know, replicable, replicable for a different population, you know, why, what might be the, you know, the ends of this, like, why would this work for this extreme and not that extreme and all those things. So, 
you know, I, I always have my idea starting honestly, first and foremost with myself, of you know, 15 years old, you know, moving on up, what, what did I see producing results with me and myself? And I think that's honestly important. And then working with people in the college population, working with general population, working with the best in the world, bodybuilders, whatever. Um, I like to, I like when I find again, cause it, I mean, this is good or bad it is what it is. It fits my bias. If I have this encyclopedia of what I've seen produce results. And obviously in that, in that big library of it, you know, there's stuff where I'm like, okay, here's outlier genetics. Here's outlier, you know, this and that here's outlier with drugs, whatever it is, but you still see this general trend of like, okay, we know these things work. Now let's see if we can figure out why they work and what we can make work better. Um, so a guy that does that, one of the best in the hypertrophy world is Chris Beardsley. I really like the way that he looks at lots of research. And instead of just kind of going the way the wind blows with one study really tries to kind of put something together. So he's a guy that I like a lot um, for really clarifying, well, what are we looking at as far as, you know, this whole, like you said, metabolite thing, this intramuscular force thing and, and whatever. Um, and so really, I think it, it really comes down to, and I don't think there's ever actually been research that shows um, any type of, you know, hypertrophy response exclusive of intramuscular force. Um, and so even when they're trying to reproduce some things from, Hey, let's create these metabolites and see if those actually lead to hypertrophy themselves. From my understanding, they've never actually been able to demonstrate it when intramuscular force was excluded. Um, so kind of Chris Beardsley at some points in time has this whole thing where he really thinks the only driver potentially for hypertrophy is intramuscular force and everything else might potentially just be symptoms of that. But, um, but it's, so it's one of those things where I'll clarify what the hell that means and why I really put the focus on what I focus on with training. But I would say for the reason of what I've seen in the gym and what I think a lot of research points to is most people should put their time and effort into producing more intramuscular force. Um, and so the simple things that we know that seem to lead to that one is, is load. Um, so just specifically having a certain load, like if you're legitimately using your five or six, five or six rep max for something, even if you're doing your one rep max, um, because of the load, um, right away, you're going to have some high threshold motor recruitment, which in and of itself is one of the things that leads to intramuscular force being higher. Um, it seems like unintentionally slow rep speed is also a very important thing, um, for, uh, intramuscular force production. And that could also unintentionally slow rep speed. Yes. So if you, there's research that shows if I intentionally train slow, so I pick something that I can do you know, 10 reps with, and I just do five reps slow as hell. And then I rack it. It's like, well, will that produce high levels of intramuscular force? And the research shows no. Um, whereas if you're moving the bar unintentionally slow, which basically happens whenever you train high levels of fatigue, most importantly, close to failure points, doesn't have to be to failure, but close to failure. It's been shown regardless of how, yeah, like if this is where this people get mixed up sometimes in my opinion, with this idea of they, they have to move the bar fast or explosively or whatever. And in reality, if you can have the intent of doing that, I think it's probably more important. And you'll see when people train close to failure, the intent can be to move the bar as fast as possible, contract as hard as you can. But if you're getting close to failure reps, it's going to move slow. And that's, that's kind of the unintentionally slow part when basically either from load or fatigue or really the combination of both, that bar starts to move slow. That seems to be one of the biggest contributors as well too, to high levels of intramuscular force. So the reality is if, where I think things make the most sense is if you look at what happens when someone's doing, you know, straight sets within the hypertrophy wheelhouse. So I'm going to do straight sets and, you know, basically the bottom end, I'd probably say five reps, but let's just say five to 10. Um, and you're taking those sets in close proximity to failure because of the load, because of the fatigue you accumulate through the set. And because of the unintentionally slow rep speed at the end, 
that's an equation for high intramuscular force production. Um, and so getting a little bit more complicated with some of that, we could actually look at what occurs over the course of the rep. And this is stuff that's, it's, it's tough to, um, for people to kind of get, uh, basically just listening to me talk, but this is where other things come in, especially for the hypertrophy world, like an exercises profile, you know, because then there's the notion of volume is important. So how do we look at how much volume or how much, whatever. And I always say volume starts with one rep, you know, you could have one exercise that basically has one challenging point, um, over the entire range of motion. And I could consider the other 75% essentially a waste. If we're looking at what muscles demands are over that point of range of motion, or we could have an exercise that has equal demands of intramuscular force over the entire range of motion. And I say, if you start to look at stuff like that, and then you start to add in things like form control, things like that, you know, you could have someone that has based on their form, based on their exercise selection could have, I mean, these numbers sound extreme, but in my opinion, four five, six times the volume in one rep compared to the way that someone else, you know, completes, this could be the same muscle group, could be the same range of motion within one rep. Um, and so I think that matters as well too. And so that's where I think that's the people kind of get confused about like, well, how do I, how the hell could I possibly do less? You know, why would two sets get the job done of eight sets? Well, between again, exercise selection, between how you're performing those sets, being how close you're taking them to failure, all those things are ways to accumulate effective volume. And I think effective volume really just means when, how much time, and again, time under tension, in my opinion, is not important necessarily the way people make it out to, but there is a component of basically just common sense stuff. Again, if I'm doing, if I'm moving my arm in space, no one can see, but I'm moving my arm in space for lateral raise. Um, you know, if, again, if, if one quarter of that range of motion is challenging, where I actually have the environment created internally to produce enough tension to actually lead to this cascade of events for hypertrophy, or I have an exercise that produces that same environment through the entire range of motion. So it's a 90 degree range of motion. My upper arm is going through. Um, I think that equates to four times the volume. So that's where, again, I, if I get something where that's kind of my, I guess, kind of one of my big principles that I have for people is this notion of efficiency, which again, comes from exercise selection, comes from the way you do things, comes from, in my opinion, what's the most efficient as far as, um, you know, training proximity to failure, total volume. Um, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of different than what some people say, according to what I hear back, but I'm always looking for people for the least volume possible to produce maximal results. So I'm always looking for the lower threshold of volume um, that we can actually <clears throat> show documentable progress and just try and keep it there instead of constantly trying to push volume as a, as a means to continue, you know, that whole hypertrophy process. So that's a whole mess of crap. Hopefully that made sense for somebody listening. Uh, but no, no, that was great. That you, you brought up a couple points that uh, that I wanted to touch on as well. And the the first one was just again about doing less because I've definitely found that as I've progressed as a coach, working with myself and athletes. So I recently hired my first coach about three months ago, and he's taking me through my my prep for nationals. Mm -hmm. um, it's been going really, really well. But the one thing that he has really changed my mind on is. Um, how much is actually required kind of what you're talking about right like mm -hmm. you know do you really need four sets of this accessory or can you just do one set really fucking hard yeah and like have a very high intensity of effort and get the same stimulus with you know i mean essentially like one third the fatigue and mm -hmm. and that's something that i was very very surprised about how much yeah. i can get out of doing such little work but having it be mm -hmm. like extremely intentional mm -hmm. and um 
yeah, it's, it's funny because now when I go to the gym, you just kind of look around and even for, you know, assistance lifts, right. Or, or accessories. Mm-hmm. And I know this is kind of a little bit more powerlifting, but I mean, yeah. I would imagine the same stuff for bodybuilding, right. You see someone mm-hmm. doing like a, a dumbbell single leg RDL and they're just yeah. kind of going through the motions and they finish and you're like, yeah, okay, but that, that wasn't like hard for you, yeah. you know, like yeah. it was challenging. You're working, but it's not like hard. Yeah, and, uh, and and it's pretty. I don't know. For me, anyways, it's definitely been a big game changer and something that I emphasize a whole lot more now with with my athletes as well. But um, kind of getting back on point, you talked about um, internal versus versus external cues, or at least you alluded to that. So, yeah. how how important is the mind muscle connection, and do you focus on that through, or I guess when you're cueing, you know what's the significance of internal versus external cues and when would you use yeah. either or do you use both? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so I would say if this would be something, if I was good at content creation and had a good schedule, I'd make a sweet infograph for this. Um, but no, I honestly think it'd be something where when someone's new, you know, so if I have somebody that I'm training, especially general population, but let's say someone's just, you know, beginner, even intermediate, and especially in the bodybuilding world, let's say they're beginner intermediate, even if you've been training for a while, Honestly, all of my cueing starts with external, um, where it's like there, there's some things that are relatively inescapable as far as setting someone up for the best opportunity for something to do what you want it to do. So it's like, okay, well, because most people, especially new people, and this, I think a lot of people mess this kind of stuff up. They try and take some of my end content and apply it to Mr. and Mrs. Jones in the gym. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not talking about squeezing and contraction, all that kind of stuff right away. That, that terminology means nothing to the average person. Um, so no, I, I always start external first, put someone's body in the positions where it's going to have the best opportunity to use what you want it to use. And then from there, it's just a spectrum. I, you know, I don't really, it's, it's going to be different with everyone that comes across the board, but I think it's safe to say as you progress and hopefully you're progressing, you know, everyone starts with some notion of form and the positions and that improves as you go from beginner to intermediate to, okay, I'm feel like I'm in a pretty good spot now. And then I think some of those internal things become more important. Um, you know, so that's a cool thing. Everyone knows in the bodybuilding world, it is important. Um, and now obviously there's some research that shows that as well too, where again, without adjusting any body positions, you tell someone to focus on something or do this thing. And, you know, we can show higher levels of EMG or whatever, which may or may not correlate to output. But I think it's, um, I think it's a very important thing. And, and the simple thing I always tell people is, again, it, you don't even have to go too deep down the whole intramuscular thing. But once you kind of get this, idea in the bodybuilding world, the hypertrophy world is that you are trying to create something within that muscle, right? You know, so again, it's all, the whole thing we're trying to do is within that muscle, we need to create some sort of environment, you know, that it's going to, again, that, that whole bunch of effects leads to actually laying down new tissue. The, the goal is to make it as hard as possible on that muscle, you know, and, and I think that's a good concept for people kind of take it if they're honest with themselves can take that and, and kind of just, again, if it, it depends, there's a whole different levels of mentality of getting to someone have self-awareness because <laughs> if they don't have any self-awareness, uh, then, you know, this could all fall on deaf ears. But the reality is if someone really, really gets, okay, like the whole point of this is to make this as hard as possible on myself, then all those things kind of are going to organize, I think a little bit more neatly in their brain, the way that makes the most sense for them, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm in these positions. I know this is the range of motion that I need, but then in reality is, <clears throat> did I go from A to B and did I, I bounce at this part? You know, did I intentionally do something where if I'm doing it this way, I know this is not that this is always, but a lot of time is I can feel the muscle more, it's more painful, or am I starting to do things to intentionally avoid that pain or mitigate that pain or lessen that pain? And um, so, yeah, the, the whole thing, it's, I think that really comes down to um, that's kind of the coaching 
you know, art slash skill set is how do you how do you move on that spectrum with somebody? Where do they fall? Whether it's their first day, or you're on this journey with somebody for months or years, or you're getting someone advanced intermediate. Because, like I said, I think that's why I'd, I'd say a spectrum is great because you could get someone that's in a good spot for something, but they could be super beginner for something else, right? So this person's advanced, but they've got this shit body part, and I look at it like, man, it's like you're you're in bad positions. You're not doing the things right. You could start back kind of with you know at ground zero with that person. And then kind of build them up across that spectrum and they probably move faster than somebody else because they get it elsewhere um but yeah i think that's that's definitely a skill set where i don't think there's a hundred percent right or wrong way to do it especially when you have individual people all at different spots but that would be a good trend i would think for every coach is again more beginners start external put them in positions and then over time work on this sensation thing and that does become important but again it's really always going to feel like because that's the funny thing too is even a coach no matter how many people i've worked with I technically still don't know what it feels like for somebody. Right. And, uh, and I've seen this, I've seen some people where um, my joke is I see it more in females than males for some reason. Um, and it's in some ways a good thing. I think females can tolerate more systemically horrible stuff than men can. And, and I've seen some females do crazy shit that would literally, I think have guys just like down for the count for like two weeks. Um, and because of that, though, I found that more females I, I deem are sneaky cheaters. And again, anybody can be a sneaky cheater, but I, I've seen happen with females more often where they just do these subtle little things that I don't even know if they perceive where it's just one little bounce, one little move, one little whatever, where I find it's more of a challenge to make things very locally horrible for a female, like to teach a female, like, hey, here's how you make your, you know, just your biceps cramp and horrible and feel like it's going to fall off. They're more likely to just want to do something that they can just tolerate better kind of systemically. And um, so again, that's really a, it's really a tricky thing. I think where, again, I have to get that into somebody's brain and realize, look, it's not just about how far and how, you know, can you take this whole thing, which may be impressive. It's about trying to get this one specific thing to this point of, you know, a failure point or close to a failure point to some degree. Um, so yeah, it's, I, in my opinion, that's fun stuff. I, I like that when I'm coaching with somebody, it's a challenge of, okay, where are they on this and what's going to produce the best results ultimately. And then it's tricky with that stuff too, because like everything, everything's got to have progression, right? You know, and I always say form execution, that whole mind muscle connection thing, how hard you're making things is a form of progressive overload. You know, where I say, if your form goes from a perceived four out of 10 to eight out of 10, even if the weight on the bar doesn't change, it, it will pretty much definitively lead to more intramuscular force. But it's really easy for people to just get caught the same way people get caught just trying to put more and more weight on the bar i've seen people just trying to squeeze shit harder and harder and harder every single week i was like okay well you can only progress squeeziness you know so much over time and it's a little people just basically turn every exercise into an isometric they're literally just squeezing a 10 pound dumbbell you know in space for this curl and i'm like okay well we've we've gone off track here somewhere we need to get back on track so it's all that stuff is i think it's fun and i think it's a challenge and all that really comes to why is muscle building hard, right? It's the same as like any, there's a huge skill set there for the way you do things. Um, it's the same with anybody that has a huge skill set. You look at like, you know, Tiger Woods or something or whatever. It's like, well, how does he hit the golf ball the way that he does? And it's like, you look at like, well, how many hours did he practice and do all this stuff? And you could just have somebody say, it's like, it's volume. I'm just going to do more. I'm just going to go hit more balls and do more shit. And there's no real easy way to say, well, no, like you have to learn all these very specific things that change the way that you do things you literally just can't beat it into the ground with repetition. It's the way that you do things that changes the outcome more than the specifics of what you wrote on paper. Cause like I said, we could all look at the, the tiger print of, all right, he spent how many hours on the range? He hit how many golf balls or any athlete, obviously you could look at the reps, you could look at on paper, but that never separates anybody in any sport. It's always how they do things. And that's the same in the bodybuilding world. People could look at anyone's workout on paper and be like, Oh, that's four exercises. That's easy. 
you know, two sets each. What the hell is that? And it's like, well, you know, it's when you see how somebody does them, you know, they put the average person in that. And again, they might be, you know, in a hospital bed. Yeah. It's sort of like this reverse causality, right? Where you, you sort of attribute the, the benefit of, I don't know, something to just an arbitrary metric that you might be looking at, you know, like the whole, well, Ronnie yeah. squatted 800 pounds. So therefore, you know, bodybuilders need to lift super, super heavy. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too dialed into like high, high level bodybuilding. I do like it, mm. but, um, so I, I might be wrong, but I, I swear I've seen Phil Heath say that he doesn't like to squat and deadlift and he mm. prefers like leg press and things like that just cause it's like less hard on his back and less fatiguing mm. and stuff. So, I mean, if I look at someone like Phil Heath and you know, he's got like what, I don't know how many fucking Mr. Olympia titles and he's saying that he doesn't squat super heavy, I'm probably going to pay attention to that, you know, at some point. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you, you also talked a little bit about uh, the, the differences in terms of range of motion. And so I, I'm not sure if you're like, when you look at an exercise, because I know even Brad Schoenfeld, um, he, he said some really interesting papers talking about like, you know, changing joint angles for to, to attack a muscle and just in a slightly different way. And that tends to lead to, to greater hypertrophy if you, if you alter the joint angles. Um, and then you said something about adjusting the range of motion. So like, are you looking at the fiber orientation to muscle action and then just saying, okay, this is where, you know, the lever arm is, is the longest. This is where we have a disadvantage at the moment. I'm like, how are you determining which of those ranges um, is going to be the best? And then do you have some sort of combination of, you know, okay, we're going to do this. And then we're also going to train through the full range of motion as well as prioritizing yeah. specialized range of motions for, for specific exercises. And then, sorry, another question on top of that is, yeah. um, are there any times where that wouldn't necessarily be so effective? Like, let's say the, the trade-off might not be that great, like doing a, a partial squat, for instance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, so a couple things that I'm packed. I'm trying to think of which order to go in. Um, uh, with all this. So, uh, I mean, first and foremost, yeah, the, the things that I, I look at, you know, and, um, I would say the start of everything, cause it's you, I, I like to start with from a muscle itself, just kind of having a baseline principle that seems to still hold true as far as force production is going to go is look at what a muscle any muscle in the body for the most part is going to follow a trend as far as what is that body muscle capable of doing? If we literally like take it out of the body. Um, so if we take a body out of it and we're looking purely at this length tension relationship thing, what are muscles capable of doing as far as force production? Um, and there is a strong correlation between, you know, force production, literally if we're looking kind of like bone to bone pool and obviously what we're doing uh, from an intramuscular force production standpoint. And what we see is that if we're actually looking at contractile tissue, you know, most muscles seem to be the strongest, which will translate to the most intramuscular force production in their mid range then probably their length and range and definitively the weakest in their short and range. Um, and so obviously it has a combination to do with cross bridging potential and all that kind of shit, which again, I tend to not get too lost in the weeds there. Occasionally I'll read some interesting stuff, but again, as far as what research still shows is that's the pretty definitive curve of where we're talking about literally just a length tension thing. We're looking at one muscle before we put it in the body and it crosses over joints and things get more complicated that is a pretty solid principle that I adhere to. So if we're going to choose exercises and we have this notion of efficiency, right? We don't want to do 10 exercises. If I can do three exercises, I'd rather do three than 10. If I can do two, I'd rather do two than five. For this notion of efficiency, I prioritize things that load a muscle or overload a muscle in its mid to lengthened range. 
and then kind of deprioritize things that overload muscle in a short position. So I'd say that's a pretty standard thing. And that's literally this notion of taking stuff outside of the body. And then when you put a muscle inside the body, if we look at what it's capable of doing from a force production, if we're really looking at torque at a joint, then that obviously changes through a range of motion. It changes as far as how does that muscle, that's when we're talking about vectors or internal moment arms, whatever you want to look at, as far as how that muscle crosses over relative to the joint axis. And that just makes things confusing a little bit from a, an external force production standpoint or a torque production standpoint. Um, so again, it's some of that sounds relatively complicated. Um, but the funny part is a lot of that actually comes to some things that people overall got right in like the meathead realm, like what, like these big compound movements, most things, if you literally most, if you go through body part by body part, the things that historically we've found to be the most effective, just old school stuff tend to overload muscles in their mid to length and range. Now I don't agree with the terminology, but things that tend people like, Oh, this is more for finishing or pumping, or people would say carve in the detail tend to be things that overload muscles in the shortened position or the shortened range. Um, now, again, the terminology at a perceived outcome, I think is different, but I don't, I don't think it's inaccurate to say if you're putting all your time and effort, like, again, even let's say I have one, I can pick one body part or one exercise for quads. Would I prefer it to be a squat pattern or a leg extension? Personally, I would prefer a squat pattern because a squat pattern is going to overload the quads in that mid to length and range where a leg extension is going to overload it in that shortened position. Now, the reality is in programming, you can have both. And I think over time should have both, but I don't think it has to even happen in the same workout. And I couldn't even tell you exactly what period of time it should happen in. Um, so if I'm being efficient, pick exercises that overload mid length and range. Um, and then if I'm really being efficient, then there's this notion of range of motion as well too. Well, if I can find an exercise that overloads the mid and length and range, or potentially even comes into the shortened range, like if I can find one exercise that loads a muscle through 90% of its contractile range um, with a load that matches what it's capable of doing, then those are going to be the things that I'm going to pick. And, and those will be the exercises that my kind of call everything on everybody calls is the ship of like my meat and potato exercises. Those are the things that I'm going to try and take. I'm going to stick with the longest periods of time, assuming they fit my body well. And those are the things I think you have the most opportunity for progression and in turn, the most opportunity um, for creating the environment that you want. Um, and then the way that I tend to do things and whatever you want to call it, I get caught up in the terminology too, just so people know what the hell I'm talking about. But I think there is merit still for work done once you're extremely fatigued, if you can recover from it. You know, so people call it finishers, metabolic work, pump work, whatever. Um, and again, I'll use all those terms just so people know what I'm talking about. But the reality is if you've done an hour and a half or two hour session, whatever you're doing at the end is not going to be using load as the main driver for hypertrophy. What you're using at that point in time is going to be fatigue and something that still trains in close proximity to a failure. So just from a coaching preference, I like to use that stuff to train ranges of motion that maybe we didn't train with the big meat and potato stuff. So in my opinion, it's a very easy way that, again, anecdotally and evidence implies that, you know, current evidence and peer-reviewed evidence implies that training muscles through their full range of motion is important. Um, and so that's a very easy and simple way to do it. In my opinion, is you could have 80% of your, your training revolving around those big movements that train those ranges of motion. And then you can use your, you know, you can call it accessory work. I think it's the same thing, honestly, really in the bodybuilding world. You can use that work, you know, to still cover other ranges of motion that maybe you didn't already. And at the same time, and, and that's the thing too, where there's, there's research that shows you know, if you're training a muscle and it's fully short in position for what you're doing, for the load you're using, for the range of motion you're going through, it's more metabolically demanding. So if, if there is something to, you know, this metabolic stimulus and creating this environment of metabolites, and that leads to this pathway 
then okay. Or it could just be the fact that you're still training in close proximity to failure. And if you were doing so, you're, you know, having a lot of fatigue, which can lead to high threshold motor recruitment as well too. And ultimately unintentionally slow rep speed, which I think would just have more intramuscular force, probably just from a smaller overall percentage of contractile fibers. So regardless of what the hell is going on, bodybuilders have been doing that for a long time. They do their heavy work stuff and then they, they might call it carve in the detail at the end or just get a pump at the end or whatever it is. But I think the methodology is, if again, if you can recover from it, is pretty good. Um, so again, that's a whole mess. I think I hopefully answered some of that stuff and some of that makes sense. Or if you can, if something didn't make sense, let me know. No, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And so it, I guess kind of building on that, then um, you, you did kind of talk a little bit about like high load versus low load for, for hypertrophy there. Um, you know, the, the primary movements of that day are going to focus a little bit more on mechanical tension. And then the rest is going to be a little bit more on, um, let's just call it like metabolic work or, or whatever yeah. kind of going mm -hmm. in closer proximity to failure at higher rep ranges. So at what point do, do you, when you structure training and sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to back up for a second, actually. Um, mm -hmm. There is some research that's sort of suggesting that periodized versus non-periodized training for hypertrophy doesn't seem to make a difference. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people have interpreted that as, we don't necessarily need to plan training and can just kind of come in and decide whatever we want in the day. Yeah. I think that becomes pretty problematic, <laughs> but oh, yeah. in terms of high load, low load, and then maybe like potent, like blocks that potentiate the next thing. If yeah. that's something you sort of believe in, um, how do you structure your training around that? Or are you always kind of having some sort of concurrent model where you're utilizing a pretty broad spectrum of rep ranges and, and different yeah. energy systems. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's a good, that is a good thing to bring up where it's um, I think in the hypertrophy world, the only thing that gets you into trouble and even into trouble isn't the right thing. You know, if we look at these purely separate blocks, like saying, okay, well, we can do something that's for pure, let's do a strength block because that will lead to obviously our ability to produce more within these rep ranges that are the hypertrophy blocks. So people will do purely, here's the strength block, here's this pure hypertrophy block, and then people will do purely metabolic blocks or whatever you want to call it as well too. Um, and I would agree. I don't think there's any evidence that doing blocks like that has any benefit. Um, and even I could make the, the argument sometimes um, that that could cause detriment, especially depending on the population you're working with, where it's when people, uh, anytime I've seen people try and run purely, you know, metabolic blocks or whatever, aside from maybe either the most genetically blessed or enhanced, uh, it's just, it's inadequate uh, intramuscular force production. And I think people just tend to lose tissue. And because of what I think occurs from a volume and an inflammation standpoint, sometimes it sets you up for a worse spot when you're coming into your next block or next rotation. The things that I look at the most when it comes into, um, you know, if I'm going to periodize some, something, it's basically volume. Um, so I will adjust volume over periods of time, depending on the individual, depending on current goal, current recovery, current whatever, because I think within the bodybuilding world, that's the biggest thing that can have like a systemic impact on, you know, recovery or whatever, getting to the point of being potentially overtrained. That being said, my goal with most people is basically having if I have someone in a good spot for recovery, if someone's intermediate to advanced, um, then they can run what I consider very, uh, a very kind of, um, I don't know what the word you use was a good word, but basically we have these things running, you know, at the same time where, uh, just a traditional hypertrophy session will be, 
you know, we've got 80% of it is focused on these meat and potato things, progressive overload, log booking. And then we have some, you know, accessory work, metabolic work, pump work, finisher work um, occurring at the end. And if I have someone's recovery is good, I can have someone run that a structure like that for months where their basic thing is they're just focusing on is keeping a stable, a, a, a similar level of overall training volume and just trying to document some degree of progressive overload basically for months. Um, and then where I have people depending on, cause you get people all over the place with recovery where that's, again, this, this notion of having to do blocks, even having to vary volume. Like why would somebody that sleeps 10 hours a night has relatively low life stress is perfect with their diet, good genetics for recovery, whatever the hell you want to call it. Why would that someone person need to periodize blocks every six or you know 12 weeks to basically deload or devolume or whatever the hell you want to call it if they haven't had enough systemic stuff actually accumulate to put them in a point where they can't keep up with it. And so I think that's the problem with these pre-planned blocks, especially where in hypertrophy, we don't really have like a, we don't have a peak performance, right? We're not trying to peak for something specific. It's just over time, we're just constantly basically trying to have this progression to some degree, just straight linear progression occurring. Um, and then where it varies too, I, I very definitely depending on goal dependent as well too. And also, excuse me, um, um, basically training level. So, you know, your, your training age. So for people that are more beginner to intermediate, I think it makes a lot more sense to put people having more time and effort just in those meat and potato things, you know, not putting much time, effort or stock in, um, you know, metabolic pump work, things like that. Um, where I think, again, that little bit of additional work and that little bit of additional effective volume, I think becomes more important um, as you get a little bit more advanced. So that's one thing I kind of change a little bit from individual to individual, but that component has a little bit more to do again with, with training age, you know, are you beginner, intermediate, advanced, that type of deal. Um, so, yeah. And then, but if I, I have people all the time where if, again, if my, I always say for us, it's, it's a D volume phase. So I have people where the goal is I will, my D volume phases or my recovery phases for people tend to look kind of like strength blocks um, to some degree where I'll generally shift someone from, you know, more of kind of a traditional, well, I don't know what the hell traditional bodybuilding split is. I have people all over the place on that, but if I have somebody where they're training, um, you know, body part stuff, maybe a push pull lower, or they still have body part day or whatever it is. I'll take them into periods of time where they have um, a lot more off days. Their training tends to go to either half body or full body. Uh, the, the volume of everything all across the board is way down. Uh, but generally I also shift their rep ranges lower. So I'll put them in something where they're sticking in maybe, you know, the four to six rep range. Um, they're not training as close to failure, maybe intentionally staying one to two reps short of failure. Um, and really we'll put someone in a period of time where, they're still keeping, you know, some intramuscular force demands high based mainly on load and still training somewhat close to failure, which I think really helps them hold tissue. Um, but over that period of time, volume being like, generally it's like a quarter of what someone might normally do, even for my stuff, considerably being relatively low volume. Um, but doing that for most people in the bodybuilding world, just a few weeks can be enough for them to recover from that systemic whole deal and feel fresh and ready to come out the other side. And most importantly, not have lost a whole lot of tissue on the way. I mean, I, I think that's the thing you, you touched on. We see that in the bodybuilding world as well, too, where people just come in the gym at any point in time and go through the motions, right? They just come in. I'm like, oh, that, that's why I don't like, you know, why don't we do five sets of 10? I'm like, nobody does five sets of 10 hard. It's impossible. You do five sets of 10 and you're either saving yourself the first four and then you do the fifth set hard, or maybe you do the first one hard and then all the rest suck after that, or they all are just fluff, which is the more likely thing. And so people do that on recovery phases as well, too. They're like, oh, I got to, I got to train lighter and just kind of let my body catch up and they'll go in the gym and just do a whole bunch of junk volume and just pump stuff. I'm like, you're probably just making more inflammation with zero benefit for holding on to tissue. And again, most normal people, when they try and do that, sometimes end up feeling worse out the other side and most of the time lose tissue coming out the other side.
Yeah, that's that's a great point. I've seen, I've definitely seen that. I so I trained at a private club where it's mm-hmm. like powerlifters and strongmen. So yeah, if you've got like a six hundred pound squat, four hundred pound bench, and a seven hundred pound deadlift, you're very mediocre there. Yeah, and 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 like maybe once a year, depend just because of my schedule and travel schedule, things like that, I'll have mm-hmm. to pop into uh, like a commercial gym. Yeah, and every time I do, without fail, I'll always see a guy who is doing like 30 exercises for his shoulders yeah and he'll be like you know oh we're, we're just gonna you know like go really slowly and i want you to feel the burn and it's like okay cool we're feeling the burn but like two minutes later you can still you can still do more shit yeah it's just like it's it's i don't know it's almost like if you just flex your muscle like crazy it's gonna cramp up yeah you know and it's gonna hurt but no one in the right mind would think that that's enough to be a sufficient stimulus to cause, you know, a robust amount of muscle growth, you know, over yeah. time if you're consistently doing that. And so there, there does seem to be like some sort of cutoff point. And I know, I know Brad said it's like roughly 30% and then you kind of have to hit that 30 to 50 rep mark or whatever and really yeah. fail. But I also think that sometimes people take that way too much to the extreme, just kind of like you were saying where yeah. they have 12 exercises and it's like, instead of 12 exercises, like, why don't you just do two or three sets of really heavy, not heavy, but like heavy relative to the rep range and whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of like overhead press and yeah. then maybe do like two or three other exercises just to kind of round everything off Yeah, and you'll be in and out much faster. And then you leave and you're like, Holy fuck, I can't lift my arm up. You know? Yeah. And so, so there's definitely a lot of time that's like wasted. And I think a lot of that too is exactly like what you're saying, right? It's taking a beginner and getting them to do all this like mind muscle stuff. When in reality, it's such as like, dude, they don't even know, you know, you tell them to like lift their arm up and they end up like touching their nose with their foot. Yeah. Like, dude, like this guy's no coordination. So I, I really like the progression model that you suggested because it's really simple where, you know, focus on those like sort of external cues initially. And then as they progress, shift a little bit more towards the internal as it become more, you know, intermediate advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to, I guess to maybe have you touch on <clears throat> a, a nutritional aspect. So um, like the association between acute versus chronic increases in muscle protein synthesis and, mm-hmm. and how important that is. Cause sometimes I think that people don't necessarily understand what that is. And like you said, they, they put a lot of stock into something that's probably a little bit more of like a, you know, just an additional benefit that you can do versus, you know, it actually being like one of those big stones that you have to check off kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, so nutrition is one of those things where I have a video on this on YouTube, which I think is uh, a good one for everyone to watch. I have, it's called like the, I don't remember what IQ it's something really clickbaity, you know, the secret to building muscle or something. (laughs) Um, but it, it really comes down to the video. Finally. Yeah, exactly. The secret. And well, and it's, and it's hundred percent accurate. It's actually not clickbait, but it's just nobody, I'm going to spoil it right now, but it's not the answer anyone wants to have. It's the stuff that you and I both know. And, um, you know, like you said, people look at this stuff on like, if there's something that produces 95% of the results, it's some of the easiest stuff on paper. Um, but it's the hardest stuff to adhere to. And people rather look at the other 5% of stuff where it's like, oh man, like look at this cool super supplement that has this great research on it, or look at this very complex strategy of doing this. And, you know, be the people that ask me like what the perfect ratio for intra workout is as far as, you know, should I have, um, you know, should it be uh, whey protein peptides or should it be, 
um, essential amino acids or should it be this ratio and how much leucine should be in there and how much this and that. And I was like, that might maybe make a difference for someone, but it's certainly not you. <laughs> and so from a nutrition standpoint, I mean, the same thing that even general population needs is the biggest barrier for people looking for advanced muscle building, which is something you could adhere to period. You know, there's some big stones that everybody seems to agree with, with uh, research seems to support adequately as well too. I think looking at a protein goal is probably one of the most important things to start with It's okay. What's my protein goal. And if you train hardish, um, you know, one gram per pound of body weight seems to be a decent place to start. And if you train much harder, I mean, I've seen evidence that some people might need, you know, a gram and a half per pound, some people even two grams per pound. And the reality is at that point in time, it's like, well, there's not really any detriment to it. And then it's like, well, do I train hard? Do I not train hard? It's like, well, if you actually train hard, experiment with that and see if it produces, you know, any different benefit. But so people first and foremost need to have some idea and protein is to stem into this. They have to have some idea of macronutrients. They have to have some idea of tracking. And I don't care what the hell you call it. I joke with that all the time. I do videos where you technically don't have to know what a macronutrient is. I mean, it makes it a little bit more difficult if you don't, but if you just do something consistently, so it's like, okay, one time look up how much proteins in a chicken breast. Okay, great. I've got to eat three pounds of chicken a day. Great. And then if you just kind of have this loose thing, it's like, you don't ever have to always go and do the math again or whatever. You just need to know, okay, well, I'm going to eat three pounds of chicken a day. And like, oh, I need a little bit more protein. All right. I'm going to eat three and a half pounds of chicken a day. Or I even joke with like, you could make your own measuring system. I'm like, I'm going to use this shovel that I found in my backyard. And this is my measuring for this. If you do something consistent and you don't change any variables, then if you need to change a variable, you know, what did what, right? So it's like, okay, well, if I, how do I know if more protein is going to help? If I have no idea how much protein I'm eating every day, how much do I know of like, I need more calories or I need more carbs, or if I need less fat, if I don't have any consistent baseline to actually compare back to. Um, so that's it. And everybody gets lost in the weeds. I mean, I think the harder you train, I think there's a little bit more evidence to maybe having slightly more frequent meals, you know? So if you're training really hard and also just this notion of what's realistic and what can your digestion tolerate, like if you need to eat 6,000 calories a day, two meals probably isn't going to do the job <laughs> just again, because from a, what that will do to your digestive tract probably wouldn't be optimal. And then just realistically what you have to eat and sitting, but so for harder, tra harder training individuals, I think there's evidence that says meal frequency is a, a good thing. So maybe, you know, three, four meals is a, is a baseline minimum. But as far as after that, you know, there's a bodybuilding notion that you have to eat six meals a day or seven meals a day or whatever. And I don't think there's really any evidence to support that at all. Um, not to say that that's wrong. I mean, if somebody enjoys that and they can do it consistently and it works for them, then that's obviously fine as well too. Um, so, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, again, I think everyone everyone that's always asked me these complex questions, I will literally be like, well, wh what are you doing right now? What do you, where do you have it written down and what are you tracking? And it's normally like crickets after that point. It's the same people, that, the same people that say they can't lose weight are the same people that say they can't put on weight. And I'm like, well, how much are you eating? I'll eat a ton. All right. <laughs> or how little are you eating? I hardly eat anything. And I was like, well, the last time I checked, those aren't actually, you know, quantifiable metrics that you can track. And so it, it really just starts with doing something that you track in whatever way, shape or form works best for you. You're consistent with it. You adhere to it. And then that way, if you need to make changes, you actually know what changes potentially doing what or not doing what. Um, so uh, hopefully that kind of answers your question of what you're looking for. Um, because again, I've never had somebody where, again, they tell me they're a hard gainer or they tell me whatever. And it's like, you're not a hard gainer. Like some people might technically have to eat more for your, their body weight, you know, compared to someone else, you know, the standard, the average or whatever. And, but that doesn't make you a hard gainer necessarily. It just means you have to maybe eat calorically more than someone else at a similar lean body tissue for whatever reason. But as soon as you find your point of where your maintenance is, and as soon as you start to structurally put over that point consistently, 
you'll start putting on weight. And I always tell people that too, when they say I'm a hard gainer, I can't put on tissue. It's like, that's not true. You're just not eating in a surplus. Cause even if you didn't train hard and you were at least eating a surplus, you'd at least get fatter. And I'm like, well, look, there we go. Weight's going on. That might not be the goal, but look, a surplus has occurred. The scale is going up. And obviously the goal is to have a surplus where it adds to, you know, more lean tissue. Um, yeah, but that's it, man. It's, it's, it's relatively simple ish stuff that people do. Like you said, they tend to overcomplicate it and they, they don't, they don't want that, but man, like eating consistently every single day for weeks and months on end, that's really damn hard. It's like, yeah, it, it is really hard. I mean, to some degree. Um, and that's why people don't like, they don't want that secret. They don't want that secret to muscle building. <laughs> is uh man consistency and adherence is, is pretty much king for everybody especially nutrition yeah no 100 percent. and it's it's kind of like a little bit of the adhd like the training adhd where they're like okay well i've done my workout and i ate my meals today what else can i do and it's just like yeah nope just just do that you're fine yeah and and yeah like you said it, it just takes a long time but you don't need a lot of these fancy things like and i Admittedly, I'm also very skeptical of the degree of severity of the whole like non-responder thing. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's more being used as a crutch than it is actually understood, you know, because yeah. very much like you, I've coached a lot of people who have been like, oh yeah, I just can't gain any weight. And I'm like, cool, then let's increase the calories. And I'll have to increase their calories by like 2000 sometimes. Yeah. They start gaining weight. It's like, mm. there, there we go. You know, yeah. I, I had a, I had a 140 pound guy mm-hmm. who was eating like almost 3000 calories before he started gaining any weight, which is yeah. quite a bit, you know? Yep. And, um, but then at the end of the day, he started gaining weight and he ended up putting on like 17 pounds, you know? And it was, yeah. like, it was pretty damn lean as well. Like, yeah, he probably gained mm. about, you know, three, four pounds, maybe five pounds of fat, but he was yeah. still very lean, still had abs, things like that. And so mm-hmm. I'm really skeptical when people are like, oh, I can't gain weight. Because it's like, like yeah. you mentioned, you know, we have an obesity epidemic. We don't have like yeah. an epidemic. So, yeah. you know, and that obviously doesn't translate to, to, you know, muscle tissue. But at the end of the day, yeah. a lot of that can be can be mediated by your sleep, by your stress, by your oh, yeah. actual training practices. So um, yeah. I'm pretty skeptical of those claims as well because I've, I've just – I've run into a lot of like quote unquote hard gainers. And then the moment yeah. they start doing things like a little bit more intentionally, all of a sudden they start seeing the progress and you're like, Oh, weird. wonder why yeah. that's happening. <laughs> yeah. And everyone gets too caught up on that. And it's kind of human nature. Yeah. Like again, it's this balance of the discussions that, cause people, it goes right in the same thread for me where people will be like, how do I know? Like if I have good genetics or bad genetics, or it's like, well, what's, What's the difference if someone's like enhanced train for twenty or not? years and figure it out? Yeah, exactly. And that <laughs> one, like, well, and will this does this only work if someone's enhanced or using PDs or whatever? And I'm just like, you know, the, I'll tell you the big secret with all of it is, of course, there are people that progress faster than others. But I've again, like you said, I've worked with so many people. Where again, I've worked with so many people outside of the category. You know, you work with females that are middle aged in their fifties or so or something, and it's like, well, all right from a genetic standpoint, from a hormone standpoint, from where these people are at, these are not people to lay down significant amounts of tissue and they can still lay down tissue <laughs> because, and all that happens yeah. is again, yeah, of course, when I work with a 55 year old woman, it happens a lot slower. Um, you know, it's not going to happen the same as some 20 year old guy that's got great genetics that just touches a weight and gets big. So yes, it's, it's fair to say that there are people that it happens easier, you know, it happens faster but that's the same as anything in the entire rest of the world. You know, people pick up hobbies or jobs or, you know, sports or classes or whatever quicker than others. And some people just have to work a little bit harder. So it really comes down to people when they say that they're like, I'm a non-responder, I'm a non-gainer. It's like, 
no, you're just not tracking close enough to see progress or the progress you're seeing isn't what you want and you're impatient. You know, so it's either yeah. people they're just they're not actually they're not actually doing stuff accurately enough to actually realize they're making progress. Like I said, they just rather see it like, yeah, it'd be nice if it happened overnight, but that's just not the way that it works. So it's yeah, I think that's one of those things where especially a non-responder or the hard gainer or whatever, you know, there's there's a degree of accuracy of yeah, it can be slower for some people, but if you're adhering to it, um, because that's that's how I that's really I think what stemmed a lot of stuff for me as a kid is everybody I trained with ever all the way from high school through college, everybody got bigger and stronger, faster than I did. And I just remember being like, what the hell, man, <laughs> you don't realize it. You know, first when you're 15 or 16, it just pisses you off. Like this doesn't make any sense or no, you don't understand anything about muscle bellies or structure and somebody's, you know, they can bench the same as you, but their chest looks awesome. And you know, I don't have one. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I'm doing the exercise and they're, we're doing the same stuff on paper. What the hell's going on? And, um, you know, so it was, it was from the fact that, okay, well, some people progress faster through that stuff is like, am I just going to quit or am I just going to maybe try and figure out a slightly better way? And then also be patient. Cause that was the thing when I really was on top of my shit and I was like, all right, well, I actually just have to pay attention to food. I actually have to get some sleep and lo and behold, progress starts happening. It's like, all right, well, it might not happen as fast as I'd like, or as fast as the next guy, but I can wait it out, whatever. I'll take a couple pounds every single year. And, um, you know, and at the end of the day, I think that's where a lot of people just, um, you know, they're unwilling to do those things sometimes. Yeah. And so I, uh, I like to kind of share my story sometimes with, with athletes when they kind of have a situation like that, because like, I mean, I'm strong, but I'm not anything crazy impressive, you know? So like Mm. when I first started lifting weights, I was, I was a boxer. I just retired. And then I transitioned into Olympic weightlifting. Mm. Um, I was 165 pounds and 183, 184 centimeters. So like six, two ish. Yeah. And, um, I was weak as shit. Like there, there were plenty of women at my weightlifting club that were stronger than me, you know? Yeah. And you know, like I just was not gifted for strength at all. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, here I am like what, almost 10 years later, uh, that was my first introduction to weights, but about 10 years later, now I weigh 280 Mm. and and you know in the next like let's say six or six or seven months i'll squat over 700 raw Mm. it's like that's not a very impressive lift for someone my Mm. size you know there's guys Mm. at 180 pounds who are doing more than that but so even though i don't have great genetics for that sort of stuff like i'm way fucking stronger and i'm way better than i ever thought i would be you know yeah and and you know i see guys who are like they're like, oh, I've been working out for six months and I just pulled like 800 pounds. I'm like, well, fuck you. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. And, and just it's so like, you know, I hate you. Okay, I've got that. Yeah. Already. Now we can carry on with the conversation. Yeah. And, and then there's, you know, like women, like, I don't know if you know who Hunter Henderson is, but mm-hmm. man, that girl is a freak of nature. She is so yeah. talented. And you, yeah. you, look at, you look at people like that and you're just like, okay, well, I clearly don't have the genetics for that. But yeah. I, I think that you can go so much farther than people think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. On, like, I mean, for me, I had to gain over hundred pounds. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's just like, how much are you willing to do? How important is this to you? And like you said, the consistency, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I still have a good 10 years left of lifting. Yeah. And I mean, where will I be? I, I don't know. You know, will I ever yeah. squat 800 pounds, 900 pounds? I don't fucking know. Mm. But, I mean, we'll yeah. find out. Yeah. Who gives a shit? We'll find out. Right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, so I don't know. I think that if people just kind of stop, like you said, just trying to rush there. Yeah. And they're just like, it's like, do you enjoy this? Yes. Okay. Well mm-hmm. then just do it and shut up and, and yeah. find happiness and some of the other yeah. things. 
you know, it's not always yeah. your progress. Sometimes like yep. my technique's getting better. Sometimes I'm recovering better. I look a little better. I'm not in as much pain because I'm training more. Yeah. Like yeah. You know, going on hikes is easier, whatever it might be. So, um, yep. you know, I, we're, we're kind of coming up on almost the 90 minute mark. I wanted to, uh, to see, is, is there anything that maybe you'd like to close with that you think is somewhat important uh, that people should know? Um, no, I mean, I think what we were just touching on is probably one of the more important things. I mean, I always say, um, you know, I think it, it goes for an individual person. It goes for coaches as well. Um, I think one of the best things, the best thing a coach can do, and I think the most important thing a coach can do, which can translate to an individual. So if you're listening and you're not a coach, but is, uh, with your clients is manage expectations. You know, I always say like a coach's job is not to produce results. 99% of the time that should be the outcome, but a coach's job is to manage expectations. Because that's the thing too with like clients is occasionally have someone that's like, hey, here's all the things you need to do. And they're just like, meh. And it's like, well, all right, we can have some bigger conversations about life here. Like the same thing that you said sometimes. I had clients before where I had you know, a client that wants to come to me, a guy that wants to lose 50 pounds. You know, he loses 40 pounds. And then the last 10 pounds is sticky. When we're having conversations, he's like, well, I'm eating cleaner, but I like drinking beer a lot. And I drink beer on the weekends when I go golfing and I go out and eat whatever. And I'm like, okay. And I was like, well, how important is, you know, you doing that versus that 10 pounds? And it was like, well, it's really important. I want to keep doing that. I'm like, all right, great. Well, you're 40 pounds lighter than you were before. You're healthier than you were before. And now you just got a, maybe an extra 10 pounds you're not thrilled about, but you still get to be thrilled about drinking beer and doing shit or whatever. <laughs> and so there's a whole bunch of stuff on that spectrum where I think, again, it, that kind of stuff hopefully fosters and supports whatever actions you're willing to do and doesn't necessarily create these um, doesn't make everything too outcome oriented, right? So with an athlete, again, it's like, obviously you want to know people, they can, everyone can always get better. Everyone can always improve. Um, and the only thing that you can do is focus on your actions. Um, but again, not necessarily focus too much on that specific outcome because whatever happens, happens. And that's, it is, it's a double-edged sword because there's this balance. Like you wouldn't want to say to people like, you know, I have people that want to get into bodybuilding and stuff sometimes. And I have the conversations that I have with people is almost sounds like I'm trying to talk them out of it. But it's really just asking them the tough questions of, you know, are they really into adhering to stuff for the right reason? Because, you know, when Phil Heath st first started lifting weights, he didn't know he was going to be Mr. Olympia. He didn't know that obviously shit's going to respond and have this crazy genetics and all that kind of stuff necessarily. Um, but so you wouldn't know if you're, you know, Mr. Shit Genetics or the next Mr. Olympia until you just get in the gym and start going. And if you end up being Mr. Shit Genetics, then, you know, you might just have something else that you're meant to do. But if you're, if you're action focused, you know, and you just like that, you like the process, you like everything else. Like you said, you can make yourself better, which is a win in and of itself. And then the great thing, again, obviously for a coaching world, it's the same with any coach in any sport in the world. It's like, well, if you're not necessarily gifted and you have to think a little bit more and you have to work a little bit harder and you have to be a little bit more aware of what you're doing, there's a much larger population of people that are in your boat, uh, you know, in, in your same shoes that you can help as opposed to people that are, you know, Phil Heath. Phil Heath has never asked me to help him with arm training. And uh, no one with genetics like Phil Heath for arms is ever going to ask for help for arm training. So the reality is, should Phil Heath be telling anyone how to train arms? I don't know. He, he tells people how he trains arms, which is fine. But uh, I think that's going to have that same outcome may or may not benefit pretty much anyone. Um, you know, so I guess that would be, yeah, that, I mean, that would be the big thing. Kind of like we touched on right, right from that to this is just, you know, if you, um, you know, stay, stay action focused um, and then just be realistic with whatever the outcome is. And, and kind of like you said, make your, make your peace with that to a certain degree and just be happy with progress or be happy with benefit, whatever it is. And because uh, like I said, the same thing, it's funny hearing you talk about the same stuff. It's uh, depending on who you're talking to, people think you're weird. 
Cause you tell somebody that you're not that strong. That's like a normal person in the grocery store. And they're like, are you trying to be like false modesty here or something or whatever? It's like, well, no, if you see the people I hate, cause I tell people all the time. It's like some people, when I talk to normal people, they'll say something about being big and I'll joke up like, Oh, I'm not big. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, Oh, well, like the people I hang out with, like those people are big. <laughs> and then it's the funny part. Like you said, you'll have people like, uh, you know, the way things are with social media, people like man or like do you even like lift compared to, i'm like i'm literally standing next to potentially one of the five biggest human beings on the planet from a bodybuilding standpoint <laughs> i'm like i should look small compared to that person and, uh, and that's the joke i mean because yeah. some of it i mean some of it i'm sure the same as you i mean it's you're you're ever for, forever going to be maybe perma perma weak in your brain where it's just like you know obviously it's like i i technically feel perma small forever like yeah i'd like to be like 300 pounds but at the same time, there's a balance of what I think is realistic and, and I can still actually be happy with where I'm at right now. But that perma small is kind of in my brain forever. So it's like, yeah, like I get it. But at the same time, the funny thing is I'll, you know, because of the way the world is, like I'll be on social media and I'll meet someone in person that follows my stuff. And I'm like, man, you're way bigger than I thought you were. And I was like, you know, well, I'm not, you know, standing next to whoever that weighs 300 pounds right now yeah. or whatever. So it's all kind of perspective on that stuff as well, too. Like in the same thing you said, I would have never thought in a million years, like my whole goal training like my first i think it took me a, a solid five or six years to even look like i worked out like that was my first goal i want people to know that i actually work out <laughs> and um you know so to get to a point where i i mean i actually you know i like the way that i look I'm, I'm happy with where i'm at right now i wouldn't have thought you know the same thing if i could have 15 see myself now and um i'm like oh holy shit, that's great man i would have never thought that was possible so you know it's the same thing it's like you got to have those things for yourself uh, you know, you just kind of have realistic. All right, I'm not, I'm not meant to be Mr. Olympia, but I can certainly be a better version of myself, which is still pretty damn awesome. And I can help people do the same thing. So, um, I don't know if that's a very concise, uh, epic uh, thing to finish on there, but I think it is. You know, again, if people just kind of take a step back a little bit and are just kind of realistic with where they're at, and, and again, just man, it's cliche, but love that process, enjoy the training, and enjoy any benefit that comes, regardless of the exact metric of how much that benefit may or may not be. You know. No, I think that was a, a great way to kind of end the episode on. So where can people find you? Um, so, I mean, I do most of my, most of my free content now. I'm actually pretty, pretty hard on two platforms. So on Instagram, it's just a hypertrophy coach, which is just spelled hypertrophy coach. Um, and so I'm pretty, pretty much daily. We're just putting out some content there. Um, my YouTube page, I've been very consistent with a few videos a week now. It's something I'm trying to um, put out more consistently there. So good stuff there. Um, and so those are good places I say to start. And, uh, and if you like my stuff, um, you know, I have an app that I do. Um, so it's, you know, through hypertrophycoach.com or if you just search hypertrophy coach and any of the app store, Google play all that. And it's basically just way more and way more detail of everything that I give out for free. So it's my thing now is based on has, you know, a lot of complete programs people can follow on it and literally just like hundreds and hundreds of hours of educational content, you know, forums I'm on there every single day answering questions and stuff like that. So that's uh, I always say start with start with dip your toes in with Instagram and YouTube see if it's your cup of tea and then again for people that are really into it that's that's the whole point of the app it's just another level of um, you know how how deep I go with some of the content awesome so all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes guys definitely make sure you go give them a follow on YouTube and Instagram and check out the app if you uh, if you want to get Jack Joe man it was an awesome conversation I'm really glad we were able to make this happen man thanks so much for joining on yeah absolutely man happy to happy to be here.